And that's what we're going to do, is begin looking at first the first letter that uh, Jesus left with John to give to Ephesus. And so I want to begin by doing a little bit of background, a little bit into the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was, at that time, an extremely large city. It was, a, it was really one of the bigger cities, it was one of the three biggest cities in the entire nation at that time, and it was the leading city in Asia Minor. There was over a quarter of a million people that lived in Ephesus at that time, so it was a big city. But on top of that, Ephesus was a city that was it was magnificent. I mean, the majesty of Ephesus was incredible. They had, they had and I want to be careful because we could go so far into this. They had libraries, beautiful statues and, and amphitheaters and all sorts of things that made the majesty of Ephesus honestly unparalleled. There was no other city like Ephesus. And not only was it a beautiful city. It was extremely important in its location and its setup. Ephesus was, was important because it was, it was a harbor city. It was built on an ancient harbor. And the city it was a place where people would come and they would come by boat. They would come by all sorts of different ways. But it was a place where people would come and go and they would have all sorts of uh, people coming through with commerce and trade and all sorts of things that were going on. People visiting from all sorts of places, nations people coming to Ephesus to visit some of the beautiful just to visit like we even do so you would come into the harbor and people would unload and they had these beautiful marble pathways that they're finding as they're excavating and they're finding out more and more at this point maybe maybe 20% of Ephesus has been excavated so there, there's a lot they don't know. What they're finding, though, is amazing things. And, and they've got these marble pathways that would lead from the harbor, and it would come up, and one of the first things that you would come to would be the amphitheater. The amphitheater in that day, over 2,000 years ago, the amphitheater seated 25,000 people. This thing was massive, and it wasn't even the most impressive building in the place. But the amphitheater was the place where you can read about in Acts chapter 19. It's where the rioters gathered. It's where the idol makers got upset and created a riot and, uh, and, and trying to drive Paul out of town on his third missionary journey as he came to Ephesus. They were driving him out of town because he was preaching Jesus Christ as God. And he was doing that right in the midst of the city. Probably, at this point, probably much of what he was doing was at the next place that you would go up the marble path to the Agora, which was the outdoor marketplace. People would come again from far and wide. People would come from all over the place to shop for goods, to trade goods, to sell goods. And this is another place where in all likelihood, Paul would preach. That was places where Paul would stop and he would open up there at the Agora and he would preach because Paul was a Roman citizen. And so one of the things that a Roman citizen had the right to do was to preach in some of these outdoor areas like that. So Paul had the ability to preach and to teach there. This was also an important, significant city because not only did people come, but goods would come in and goods would go. It's like some of the port cities that we have in, the, in America. These are important places because so many things come in, but also because so many things go out. From Ephesus, goods would go out. People would go out. And, and this, as much as anything else in importance, from Ephesus, ideas would go out. 
Ephesus was a place where they discussed and disputed and talked about all sorts of crazy things. And so as part of uh, Paul's missionary journeys and Paul's plan in, in when he was laying out these missionary journeys, and you see that throughout the book of Acts, Paul would travel to various places and he would go to these cities, including three journeys that he made to Ephesus. So this was an important place. If you look at Paul's missionary journeys, you'll see that what Paul did was Paul went about traveling about, but Paul, on his missionary journeys, he did most of his stops and most of his ministry in the cities. He, he, he spent most of his time in the larger areas, bypassing a lot of the rural or suburban areas, again, which Jesus spent a lot of time in, in Israel going through those small areas, but Paul went mo- mainly to these large cities. And again, the reason wasn't because he didn't care about those people. The reason was because God cares about all people and God cares about all places. And that makes cities, even in God's eyes, cities are strategic, important places. Because if you reach a city, the good news of Jesus goes out from that city. And so people come and people go, people taking the news of Jesus and going to different places. As I was studying some of this, and again, I want to stay with my notes because I, there's so much that we could have gone into. But I was reading some church historians, and some church historians, uh, very well-renowned church historians, say that in the early days of Christianity, upwards of 60% of those who lived in major Roman cities, upwards of 60% of them were Christians, which is pretty amazing. And in these same distant areas then, the majority, upwards of 90% of those who lived in the rural areas were non-Christians. Again, the people that lived in these rural areas, in these outcast areas, these were people that were called pagans. And pagan, literally, the word pagan, the root of that word is one who lives in the country or villager. And so these people, these pagans were the villagers that were out there and it became a real negative thing because so many of them living in these outskirts had no idea of Christ and and were partakers of all sorts of demonic and evil and wicked activities. And so pagan got tied together in that way. And so early on, the move of Christianity was something that was, a, it was an urban movement. It was a city movement. It was targeting cities. And from those cities, the, the news of Jesus Christ would go out and spread from those places. And, and I tell you that because one of the chief cities, one of the most important cities that was uh, uh, sharing all of these things was this great city of Ephesus. It was an amazing, amazing place. You'll read in Acts chapter 19, again, I'd suggest that you go through and read that. It's about Paul's missionary journey there. You'll see where Paul states that Ephesus was the place where the good news of Jesus went out to the entire region of Asia Minor, including from Ephesus, including then the churches mentioned in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation that we're going to get to in the coming weeks. So a little bit about Ephesus. Now, Revelation, this is the place where, where Revelation, and, and I'll share a little bit with you about this. This is where Jesus visits John. And, and this is how this revelation comes from, This or where this revelation comes from. So Jesus had picked in his life, he had picked 12 disciples to become apostles. Amen? We all are aware of that. Those apostles were those who Jesus spent the majority of his time with teaching and training and raising up to do what 
God was going to leave them to do. And one of those was a young man named John. Now, John was there throughout the entirety of Jesus' ministry. He was there when Jesus died. He witnessed his death. He witnessed his burial. He was there through all of that. He was there when the grave was opened. He was there when Jesus rose from the dead. He was witness to all of those things. And John, being a devoted Jew, he never would have truly worshipped Jesus as God had he not known that he was the resurrected God. And he knew for a fact that he was the resurrected God because he was there. He was there and spent time with him. He spent 40 days with Jesus after he had seen him dead in the grave, after he had seen him rise up from that grave. He spent 40 days with Jesus, listening to him in that risen state, preach and teach and go forth and declare the wonders of his ministry, the resurrection power of Christ, how he overcame death, hell, and the grave. He was there watching when Jesus ascended back to heaven. And so John, he became a powerful leader in the church. He saw some tremendous things that were going on. And so John, from that point, began to preach, and John began to teach. And John, you know, he went through all sorts of hardships. John witnessed all of the other apostles dying horrible, bloody, murderous, martyrous deaths. He's witnessed to all of that. And they tried to kill John too. But the guy, the the poor guy just wouldn't die. You know, they did. They, They tried to, they didn't try to, they did. They boiled him alive in a vat of oil. I was making some soup the other day. And I had some hot oil in the pan and it was hotter than what I thought. And so when I poured some stuff in, it started to just steam up and, and I burnt my poor finger. <laughs> that hot oil was horrible. And for two weeks, my finger had these bumps on it and, and it just, you know, it bothered me. Don't you feel bad for me? I guarantee you John doesn't. <laughs> No, John had been dipped in, oil, in, in boiling oil. Can you imagine? The, just imagine the condition of his skin. Imagine what he looked like. Imagine the quality of life. Man, going through that, you would be like, God, why didn't I die? But the guy didn't die. So what did they do? They exile him to an island called Patmos which is 65 miles off the coast, out from Ephesus, 65 miles on this isolated island, they put him to rot. This guy who has been burned in boiling oil is now put on this deserted island to live all by himself. And if you read in Revelation 1, and again, I want to suggest to you, go read Revelation 1. Revelation 1 is amazing. I'm not going to go through it. I just want you to. In Revelations 1, we read that, that the, day, the day that we're talking about here, it is, it, he describes it as it was the Lord's day. So it was Sunday. It was the day, it was the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the time when Christians begun to come together. And so here it is. It's the Lord's day. And where's John? John is all alone. 
And he's all alone out there, away from fellowship, away from the people, away from the churches that he'd raised up, the churches that he loved, the people that he loved. He's away from everyone. All of the apostles are all dead. Here he is in pain, the only one alive. I'm the only one still there. Can you imagine how lonely he was and what kind of shape he was in and how his attitude could have been? I'm alone here. I'm exiled on an island, living in a cave. They found a cave on Patmos where they believed that this whole encounter happened because here he is, and I think what John was probably doing there was in that cave. It was the Lord's day, and he was in pain, and he was probably hurting. Again, I'm, I'm just imagining those things. But here he is, and what's he doing on the Lord's day? He's worshiping. Worshiping. And in all that, can't you just see with his eyes closed and, oh God, I don't know what in the world is going on here. I hurt and I'm in pain, but God, I know who you are and I know you're the God in whom I serve. And if this is what you have for me, then I will take it and I will do this because I love you and I want to serve you and I want to live for you, Lord. And if it's all alone here on this island and in pain, I will live for you. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, behind him. Jesus comes. Jesus comes in all of his glory to visit with John on an isolated island in the middle of nowhere. Jesus comes from heaven. And he comes from heaven and he starts to speak to John, starts to share with him John, I want you to do this. And, and, and in these first three chapters, he's talking to the church that's there. And then he gets into some of the prophetic things. But in these chapters here, he gives seven letters to John and says to John on that island, and I want you to give these letters and I want you to deliver them to the churches. And the first church is the church at Ephesus. Now, again, the church in Ephesus, somebody asked, well, you know, was it, what, what was the church like? Well, you can only imagine the church was probably more than just one church. They probably weren't gathering in one, you know, big gathering that was going on at the time because, again, that would have been dangerous for them to do, even in a city such as Ephesus. So they're probably, and they're finding it more and more, there probably were a lot of home churches, a lot of home meetings that were going on all through the city, all over the place. As they excavate, they find more and more homes, and these homes would have nice-sized homes, big homes, but they'd have these big, giant patios and meeting areas, and more than likely were areas where people would come together and meet. Because there were large numbers of Christians in Ephesus at this time. And they probably were meeting in different places, different areas, different home churches. I, again, I, I don't, we don't know, you know, I couldn't find all the details in all of that. But we do know that the story, the news, the gospel of Jesus Christ came after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. When the disciples or the people went home after the pouring out of the Holy Spirit into the streets and the people took the news of Jesus back and they would have taken the news of Jesus Christ back to their homes, back to their hometowns and, and Ephesus was one of those places. That's how the good news got there. But the good news began to grow because Paul saw that this was a place where God wanted the gospel to grow. God wanted the gospel to go forth. And so Paul, he made three different missionary journeys that he came to Ephesus to 
should proclaim the gospel. And again, in Acts chapter 19, if you read that, you'll see Paul actually sets up in the hall of Tyrannus and he lectures for five hours a day for two years. Says he was there every day for two years. Now again, take the Sabbath off, I doing the math. That means that Paul approximately spent 3,120 hours preaching, teaching, declaring the gospel message over a two-year period. And I can guarantee you that the reason that he kept doing that was because people kept coming. People kept coming to hear. And because of all of that, Paul in his missionary journey, doing all of the things that he was doing, this caused Ephesus became the epicenter of Christianity, the epicenter of where that would go, especially because the, the temple had been destroyed in 70 AD. So this is a few years after that. And then the gospel is spreading and Ephesus becomes this extremely important city when it comes to the gospel going out to all the world. And so... That brings us then to Jesus' word that he brings to the church at Ephesus. And in Revelations chapter 2, in verses 1 through 7, we'll look at that. But you know, if you look at chapter 1, you will see that Jesus Christ truly is the exalted king. He is the exalted God. And if you read chapters 2 and chapters 3, you can't come away from that without at least Hey, having to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is all-knowing. He is all-seeing. He knew everything that was happening. He is the sovereign Lord. He is God. He is the king of all kings. He knew exactly what was happening in Ephesus and in every single one of those churches all at the same time. He knew what was going on in each and every one of them. And he becomes very specific about what he's telling them. He's specific about telling them in places where they were succeeding. He was specific about telling them where they were failing. He was specific about telling them exactly what he wanted them to do and ultimately he was doing that because Jesus Christ truly is the head of the church he is the head of it all and these are the words that Jesus gives to those living in the church that day in Ephesus and again I want you to be reminded of this and I'll say this a couple of times The church that he's talking to at Ephesus was a born-again, I mean, born, saved by grace church. These people had come into grace. They had come into mercy. They had been filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul came there and said, what baptism have you been baptized in? We've been baptized into the baptism of John. Well, that's a baptism of repentance. And Paul laid hands on them, and they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. So this was a Spirit-filled church. And listen to what he says. In verse one, he says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write this. And, and, and again, when you read through the letters, you will see that there are some things that are consistent in all of these seven letters, some things that are consistent in all of this. And one of those things is that it says every church has an angel. He says every church has an angel, and that angel is appointed by God to guard, to oversee the well-being of that church and the people within that church. So each church has physical human leadership and each church has spiritual, supernatural leadership. Now, you may believe, you may not believe, that, you know, that, that's between you and God. But I have had multiple people on multiple occasions come to me and say, Pastor Mark, while you were preaching today, there was an angel standing over your back. Oh, yes. and, and again, you can take that in a number of ways, like, 
you're spending too much time on peyote. (laughs) But I've had multiple people at multiple times tell me the same thing. And the reason that I believe that is because the descriptions are exactly the same. There are angels that God has posted over the church and over the way in which, again, otherwise the enemy could just run rampant. So God's protecting, God is keeping. And he goes on and he says this, and he says, uh, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now again, Revelations 1 tells us that what he's referring to are the seven angels. I, in, as I was studying and, and researching some of that, I also believe, again, I know that that is because he tells us that in Revelations, but I also believe that he was taking a little dig at the Roman emperor Domitian. Uh, I just believe that. This guy had declared himself to be Lord, God, and Savior. Even while he was living, he had declared this. I mean, the Christians in that day, the Christians in that day called him the beast. And there are some, even some today, that still in commentaries believe that when Revelations 13 talks about the beast, that they're talking about Domitian. Now, again, I'm not saying that that's where I stand on that, and and there is a debate over that. I'm just telling you that's the kind of guy this was. This guy was horrible. He declared himself to be God. He began to name months of the year after himself. And he declared himself, again, this was totally unusual. This didn't happen any other time. But he declared himself to be God, Lord, and Savior at the beginning of his reign as emperor, not at the end. Most of them did it at the end. After they died, others would do that. They waited until they went into the spirit realm before they were called gods. But this guy did it at the beginning of his reign. And to kind of seal that, he demonstrated that by minting his own coin, with, uh, and he put himself on the coin. This is, this is a, an old coin here, and that's Domitian. Now, again, what you see surrounding him is you see him, he has declared himself to be God. So uh, think about it. He's sitting on a globe with seven stars all around him. And he's even made his hands to look like stars. Now, those people that were there in Ephesus probably were walking around with that coin in their pocket. And this letter comes, and and they've got this coin of the Roman emperor who's worshipped as God. He's sitting on the world as God, ruling and reigning with the seven stars. And I think Jesus is having a little fun. (laughs) Um, you can think what you want with that. But I think Jesus was like just saying, hey, this guy makes coins with stars. But I'm the one who actually holds those stars in my hand. Hey, this guy, he may think he rules, but I'm the one who rules over all of heaven and all of earth. This guy, he's a fraud. I'm the real thing. And I'm the one who created it all. I am the king. And I am not just a king. I am the king of all kings. And Jesus is declaring that. And then he says, he says, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, again, he's referring again to the churches. He's referring to the churches that are going to be gone through as we look into you know, chapters 2 and 3 and finish that out. The church is described like a lamp. He does that over and over again in Scripture. 
And if you can just think of a place that is filled with demonic, filled with demonic activity, filled with darkness, filled with paganism, filled with all sorts of ungodly things, and it's dark, and Christianity is to come and to be a light. That's why Jesus says that I'm the light of the world, and the church is intended to be the lampstand upon which the light would reflect. It's what he's called us to be. So you and I, we are supposed to be as a church and as individuals in the church, as the body of Christ, he's called us to be a lampstand, not to necessarily be the light, but to be the reflection of the light. Meaning that what we do is we, we, when we say what Jesus might have said. We talk like Jesus might have talked. We try to act like Jesus would have acted. We try to love the way Jesus loved. We try to serve the way Jesus served. Why? So that others that are living in spiritual darkness might be attracted to him and find his transforming power in their life. And so all this is the imagery that he gives us, this imagery of the church. Now again, here and in other places, Jesus says that if the church does not repent of its sin and correct its way, he says, I will come and remove the lampstand from you. I will take it away. He said, hey, listen, If you don't do as I've called you to do, and if you don't burn brightly for me, I will come down and blow out what remains, and you will no longer be a church. I will, in fact, shut you down. This is what he's saying to us. It's what he's saying to this church. So that's that's verse one. Now in the the next few verses, he, he breaks this up. And what he does is he, he brings an encouragement. He brings an encouragement first. And then he brings criticism. And there's places of correction. So let's read through this and, and we'll talk about this a little bit. Verse two, he says this. I know your works. I know your toil. Your patient endurance. And I know how you, how you cannot bear, or you cannot stand up under those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Verse three, he says, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Praise God, amen? Amen. But then he comes to the criticism. In verse four, he says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. I will shut you down unless you repent. And then he comes back and brings another bit of encouragement in verse 6. He says, yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans. Now, the Nicolaitans, they were followers of Nicholas, and and one of the things that they were absolutely known for was their tremendous sexual promiscuity. They were known for sexually promiscuous things, even in religious rituals. You know what God says about that? He says, which I also hate. Church, God hates sexual promiscuity. Wait a minute. <clears throat> he does. And then he, so he says, 
you hate the work of the Nicolaitans. You hate that kind of sexual promiscuity, which I also hate, he says. And then he goes on and he says, he who has an ear, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do we hear? Because he says, he goes on, he says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Church, this is a serious letter. This is something he wrote to people who had experienced, this church was a church, it was a church of grace. It was a church that was spirit-filled. And yet he's talking to them in a very straightforward way. And in this, as I said, he brings these encouragements and he brings these corrections, these places that he wants them to, he, he criticizes some things. We'll, we'll talk about that as well, but I want to look at the things that he encourages first. And number one, he, he, he's telling them, basically they, they were faithful servants, that the church served faithfully. He's commending these people for working hard for the church. These people were doing what God had called them to do for the church. He was doing, they were doing things. They were volunteering their time. They were giving their money. They were doing what it was that God was calling them to do. These people were hungry for the gospel. They were hungry to hear what God was saying, hungry to be trained up. These people were coming to see Paul. They were going out and coming in. These people were doing the things that needed to be done. Christians were coming in from all over the place. People were coming to hear, coming to come to classes. Can't you just imagine how this was catching on like wildfire? There were pastors that needed to be housed, missionaries that needed to be fed, funds that needed to be raised, service that needed to happen. And God said to them, and you have faithfully served. He was commending their faithfulness because they were devoted to the cause. He says, I don't have any criticism about your service. And it was because of their service, church, it was because of their service that Ephesus became the epicenter of this Christian movement. And it was because of that that the gospel went out into the entire region. Paul says in Acts 19, he says, talking about from Ephesus, the gospel rang out from this place in all of Asia because of these people. Who are these people? Who was it that was doing all of this? They're not all named. Yes, Paul went out and did many other things. But again, there was way more than just Paul that was going out. Many, we don't know their names. But he's commending the church as a whole for their faithfulness. You know who was going out and sharing? Faithful Christians. Taking the message, taking the hope. Faithful Christians. My question for us is, would Jesus commend us the same way today? Would Jesus commend us for our faithful service? The second thing that he, in all of these uh, encouragements is he encourages them because they had endured hardship. You know, I just think about this place, Ephesus, how difficult a place it was. First off, the city is a difficult place anyway. I mean, living in a city, raising a family in a city, doing things in a city is a difficult thing. This would have been a very difficult, hard city for people to minister, 
for people to, to live because, I mean, there was people passing through all the time. There were people coming and people going and people coming in with all sorts of weird new ideas and weird new thoughts and weird new theologies. People coming in and they were all discussing all these new things and, and who was the best debater. That was oftentimes the one that they began to say, yeah, that sounds good. The, to, the, to the gospel message, there was opposition of all sorts and all kinds. You know, in Ephesus, just right there with the temple of Artemis, there was over 50 gods and goddesses that they worshipped at that time. Over 50 different gods. How would you keep it all straight? And they were worshiping in them. What a difficult time. Can you imagine with all of that going on, all that kind of, of just public, out there worship, I mean, all sorts of idols being made and created. What a difficult place to try to raise a godly family. What a difficult place to be a Christian. This whole thing would have been really hard. This was that place where, as I said, Domitian was worshipped as God. And if you didn't worship him as God, then you put yourself in a place where you could be actually put to death because of it. And in that day, the only exception was if you were a Jew. If you were a Jew and living in this Roman city, you, and there was a large number of Jews that were there, and the Jews that were there were those who had rejected the message of Jesus Christ. And so in the, the synagogue, they would kick out those who were Christians, and they would send them out to be exposed, because no longer were they now under the, the exemption of Judaism, and so they would be kicked out, and now they're possibly in a place where they, as they declare Jesus Christ as Lord, they're saying, and Domitian, you are not. They expose themselves as a rebel against the state and, and put themselves in a place where they could be killed for that. How would we do? If we could be killed walking out those doors, because you were in a Christian church. I mean, the snow stopped a lot of people from coming to church today. <laughs> the threat of being killed, I don't know. I th I'm not sure what that would do to our attendance. There also was in Ephesus, the temple, as I mentioned earlier, the temple of Artemis. The temple of Mar Artemis was amazing. You know, the, the temple of Artemis was one of the ancient seven wonders of the world. In Ephesus, I mean, along with the pyramids, this was an amazing thing. And people would come from all over the place to visit the temple and to worship this goddess, the goddess Artemis or, or Diana. You know, they would come and worshipers of every kind of God because, again, every other god came under that. And so they would come together and they would worship there in the temple and they would come to visit just like many come to see the temple here. Can you imagine how many people were coming to visit the temple of this goddess? the temple of Artemis. And these people that were there, they had to endure emperor worship. They had to endure the worship of false gods. They had to endure, in that day, they had to endure legalized prostitution. They had to endure all sorts of, of, of illegal things that were committed as legal in that day. But on top of all that, they had to deal with every day the fear of death, the fear of being put to death. And Jesus says this in the face of all of that. He says, 
you endured hardships. You faithfully served and endured. Church, would Jesus be able to commend us the same way? Are we willing to endure the way that they endured, the discomfort, the temptations, the self-will? Would Jesus commend us the same way? The third thing that he encourages them with is the fact that they had sound doctrine. They had sound doctrine. These guys, they were not heretics. They knew false doctrine, and they knew what it looked like, and they stood against that false doctrine. That meant that they weren't reading every crazy book, and there was a lot of crazy books that filled the, the, the library in Ephesus. A lot of crazy books that went around. In fact, at one time, they had a giant book burning of all these pagan books. So these people weren't going for all of that. They weren't believing the myths. They weren't giving in to all of these false teachings and fables and folklores. They weren't giving in to what was culturally expected at that time or what had become normalized. They weren't giving in to these places, chasing after crazy, misunderstood, misinterpreted scripture. They weren't, they weren't giving in to some of these things that so many do. They weren't giving in to somebody who was able to explain some wild new idea in a way that sounded good, sounded biblical. It's the most dangerous new idea there is. One that sounds biblical. And that's what these people were going through. But Jesus is telling them, you stood for the truth. You stood for the truth. You confronted the false apostles. You confronted the false teaching. You confronted the things that were not true. You stood against those things. They didn't fall for every new idea because they knew the truth. They knew the truth. So they couldn't be swayed with the counterfeit. You know what, in our day, why is it that the counterfeit seems so much Mm, more easily embraced. Why is it in our day that false teachers can become so popular, even amongst the church, false doctrines, all kinds of crazy things, crazy instruction, crazy things out there that want to come in and, and, and pull people away from the church? Well, that's never been new, and that's not new today, and it wasn't new then. Can you imagine, as God is creating this epicenter in this Roman city of Ephesus, how it, it, with the, you know, the, in the shadow of the temple of Artemis, how the gospel would have come under attack? Christianity was taking its roots, and how difficult it must have been for them because of all of the cultic activity that would try to come. And listen, that is what cults do. Okay, throughout history, you watch what cults do is cults will come in and they, they, they come in behind Christians. They come in behind, if you watch through the Crusades, Crusades are a great time. People coming to Jesus, the Crusades are awesome, but Crusades are also one of the most dangerous times because what cults do is they come in behind that. Historically, they do that. Just take a Billy Graham crusade as an example. Billy Graham crusade would come into a town, and what would happen is the 
the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses. They would make plans to come in and be part of the cleanup crew. And as Jesus was being uh, shared with people, they would come into town and wait for people. They would lie and, and pick people off. And come, and, and as they hear about Jesus, they would come and twist the truth and try to pull them away from the true God, Jesus Christ. Well, you know that same thing had to have been going on here in Ephesus. You know that same thing would have happened. There were so many false teachers that were there, so many people with crazy, weird ideas, false spiritual leaders, crazy new ideas and strange things that were being written, and all of it being done in the name of being religious or being spiritual. Church, spiritual does not equal godly. Okay, we don't, we're not spiritual. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. And in the name of spirituality, a lot of things go on. But Jesus is saying to them, you know what? You've not followed that. You guys are Bible-believing, truth-telling, spirit-filled people of God. And church, he commends them for that. Would Jesus commend us the same way? Do we have a healthy base of doctrine? Honestly, I'm afraid not. Because statistically, I, I, I was looking some of these statistics up and this is sad. This is the state of the church, the Western church. Statistically, in 2021, the statistics say that 50% of those who declare themselves born-again Christians, 50% read their Bible two times or less a year. 50%. Do you know that there is a higher percentage of people who never read their Bible than there are Christians who read their Bible every day. You know, we can have Bible studies. And, and, and we are a church of three, maybe 400 people. We can have Bible studies. Four people, five people show up. Why? Because we're so doctrinally sound. because we're arrogant and prideful and we think we know it all these people were hungry for that they were hungry for doctrine and they knew it would he give us the same commendation today and the last thing is these people they hated the heretics and I know that's a strong word we, we don't hate you know what? The more you love God, the more you will hate what is evil. Amen. The heretics were those who were intentionally leading people astray. And church, you need to know this, that in this world, there are sheep, there are shepherds, and there are wolves. Amen. All right? I mean, and sometimes what's sad is that the sheep will, will read all the verses about love. Love. We'll read all about love and, and it's all about love and, and, and we're just supposed to love everybody. No, you're not. You're not supposed to love wolves. Wolves, 
Look, sheep are supposed to love sheep. Sheep are supposed to love shepherds. Sheep are supposed to hate wolves. Okay, this is what he gives us as an illustration. And wolves are those false teachers, false apostles, false leaders, those who dishonor Christ, those who disobey Christ and lead people astray, pulling people further and further from the king of kings, from the light of this world, people who are okay in darkness and try to pull you into it as well. Those are wolves. Oh, but... Pastor, you know, sometimes we come in contact with somebody and we know that their, their doctrine is not on. It's something that's there. It's going to pull us away from Christ, not towards Christ. And we're faced with these false teachings. And sometimes because we don't know doctrine or we don't know where we stand on certain things, we just say, well, you know, can't we just love them? Can't we just embrace them? You can love them, but you've got to start hating what they're teaching. You've got to start hating what they're standing for. Because church, listen, wolves love sheep. They just love them in a different way than shepherds do. Shepherds love sheep. So they protect them. Wolves love sheep. So they eat them. There's a huge difference in that. You should not love a wolf. That wolf wants to eat you. Because, church, we are sheep. Like it or not, we are sheep. And God has called us as in leadership to be a shepherd. A shepherd that would love and care for the sheep and protect the sheep and try to do everything we can to keep the sheep from the wolves, like what we're doing right now. A wolf is somebody that is very, very dangerous. And they come in and they want to lead you astray. They want to lead us away from God. And the good shepherd... A good shepherd will do in the example of Jesus and fight against the wolves and love the sheep. Love the sheep. That's why Jesus said, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And for each and every one as leaders, we're supposed to be willing to do the same thing. That as a church, we would follow his example. And Jesus is telling him, you know what? False teachers came. They came in, but you know what? You guys, like good shepherds, out of love for the sheep and love for the chief shepherd, you have opposed them, and that is good. Are we opposing those things? Some of you need to hear this because we think the answer is just to love everything. We think the answer is just love everything and consider every idea. That is so dangerous. That is not what the Bible calls us to do because out there he tells us very plainly there are wolves in sheep's clothing. There are those who are deceptive, those who are dishonest, those who are dishonoring, those who don't care about you, those who don't care about the church, those who are actually working for the enemy. And you can pray for them all you want and you can want good for them, but the Bible tells us do not accommodate them. Don't partner with them. Jesus says don't tolerate that. Church, because they want to lead you astray. They want to lead you away from what would be biblical. And that is not good. So, 
would Jesus commend us the same way? Could Jesus, would he have had the freedom, because he can't lie, in all honesty, would he have been able to write this letter to us? Worship team, would you come back up? Now, again, this is all encouragement. Can you imagine how, how encouraging this would have been to these people? I mean, this is awesome. Look at Jesus came down from heaven and he said this stuff about us. Look, if I would have tell you, I got this letter from Jesus, I know it's from Jesus because it's all in red letters. And it, this is what he says about us. And he, we read this out loud and we read this and it's like, oh, this is so wonderful. We have this letter from Jesus and it's so cool. Can you imagine that's what this congregations were like when they were reading this letter? How awesome. This is wonderful. The pastor reads this out loud and they're like, yes, that's us. Thank you, Jesus. Imagine that. He knows what we're doing. And he's pleased with that. He's happy with us. He knows how we're serving. He knows how we're standing. He knows what we're doing. We're so blessed. We are so excited that Jesus gave us this. He knows how committed. He knows how devoted we are. And that would be fantastic. If that was the end of the letter. But it's not. And Jesus comes with what we'll find out next week are some very stark criticisms. And they fold into some of the encouragements. In fact, some of the encouragements are the reasons why some of the criticisms came. So let's not get too rah, rah, rah about it all. Church, I want to end with this. Just bow your heads with me for just a moment. Would Jesus be able to write these encouragements to us? Would Jesus be able to write these encouragements to you? Would he look at your life and say, you have been faithful. You have endured hardships and not given in. You have studied and, and found sound doctrine upon which you have built your life. You have hated the heretics. If not, repent. Just repent. Repent and turn to Him. Repent and come to Him. Repent. Give your heart to Him. As He says, Return to your first love. Lord, speak into every 
heart. Oh, he who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to the church. Church, you are the church. What is the Spirit of the Lord saying to you? In a day when it's so easy to be confused with the cultural things that are going on, the small little twists that people bring to Scripture, the new ideas that seem so much more palatable today, speak to your people. He who has ear to hear, let him hear with the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit is saying to the church today. Ask him. I dare you. Ask him. Lord, speak to him. study. I know I'm going in a bit of a different direction than what some of the other studies go into and, and praise God for that. I pray that what happened above all else is that the Lord speaks to you and that you receive what God has for you today. That we are the church and as you go out, I want you to go be the church. Go live your life in such a way that Jesus would write a letter to you with such things in it. Amen? God bless you. We're going to worship as we go. You have a beautiful day. Don't forget the offering box is now in the back. You go have yourself a great day. Contact your life group leaders to make sure you're having that get together tonight and go be blessed no matter what. Go be blessed. I love you, church. Have a beautiful day today. My heart.